I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, July 13, 2023. I'm Benjamin Hall. A memorable NATO summit revives an ongoing debate on Capitol Hill. Should the U.S. keep funding war efforts in Ukraine or dedicate the money to repaying debts? I don't think the American taxpayer should have to pay for them, nor do I think we should borrow. I think those are threats to our national security. The focus has to be right now, which is to win and to provide the military weapon systems to enable them to win. We speak to two senators who take opposing stances on this debate. I'm Chris Foster. Prices are still going up, but a lot more slowly after months of interest rate hikes. Inflation is still too high. I bet we're still a go in July for a Fed rate hike, and then we'll have to see um, about further on from there. Taylor Riggs co-anchors the Big Money Show on Fox Business. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. One of the most significant NATO summits in recent memory took place this week in Lithuania with the focus being the war in Ukraine. NATO leaders coming together to offer a joint declaration of support aimed at bolstering Ukraine's military capability. President Biden saying this level of support would continue for as long as it was needed. I think it's a powerful statement, powerful statement of our commitment to Ukraine as it defends its freedom today and as it rebuilds the future. And we're going to be there as long as that takes. The other main topic was whether Ukraine should join NATO And after initial frustration from President Zelensky, who said it was absurd there had been a delay in their accession, he was assured that there would eventually be a pathway for them to join once the war was over. I am confident that after the war, Ukraine will be in NATO, will be doing everything possible to make it happen so that we with the United States would have a same understanding and same vision. But back in the US, there continue to be some questions about whether too much money is being spent on Ukraine during a time of growing inflation and rising energy prices with Senator J.D. Vance saying the focus should be on the threat from China. What they've basically done is thrown $130 billion into a Russian and Ukrainian money pit. They've drawn down critical weapon supplies and artillery and missiles and other systems, weapon supplies that we should be using in Taiwan to prevent the Chinese from invading Taiwan. But for now, congressional support for backing Ukraine remains firmly bipartisan, with President Biden's Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Carl, telling Fox News' Jackie Heinrich that even if there was a different president, that wouldn't change. Congress deserves a lot of credit for uh, signaling bipartisan support uh, for Ukraine. It's really important, again, to convey to Vladimir Putin that he can't just wait us out. But can you stand behind Ukraine while also calling for a halt on financial support? Some on Capitol Hill say yes. Well, it's not as if we have surplus funds. It's not as if we're running a surplus and we say, hey, guys, we've got a lot of extra money laying around here. Why don't we go looking for causes around the world to support? We speak to Senator Rand Paul, who believes the U.S. is carrying too much of the costs. We borrow, you know, over a trillion dollars a year. We're $31 trillion in debt. So literally, we borrow money from China to send it to Ukraine. Um, I think it makes no sense. We have no uh, inspector general looking over this process. I've advocated for over a year that uh, the CIGAR, which is the special inspector general for Afghanistan, be reassigned to Ukraine. He has a team in place. He's shown that he can find and root out waste and corruption. Ukraine's historically been one of the most corrupt nations on the planet. 
and we are fools to send over $100 without sufficient oversight. Just in the last year, they've imprisoned high-ranking uh, government officials in Ukraine for malfeasance. So I think it's not uh, an unreasonable request to say, look, where are we getting the money, and why don't we have sufficient oversight to make sure they're not robbing us blind? So it's not about the support for Ukraine. I mean, you, you support them, you want them to have the weapons they need, but do you think there is a cutoff point that they only should have a certain amount of weapons and you want to know exactly where that money is being spent? Is that where you stand? I don't think the American taxpayer should have to pay for them, nor do I think we should borrow. I think those are threats to our national security. The further we go into debt, I think our enormous debt burden is actually a threat to our national security. Ukraine's a lot closer to Europe, and I think Europe ought to be a lot more involved and be picking up more of the tab here. But ultimately, my sympathies obviously lie with Ukraine against the aggression of Russia. But it's a matter of dollars and cents, and it's a matter of uh, my concern, which is a longstanding concern over the debt that America has accrued. Hmm. Uh, You mentioned European countries there. Do you think that NATO members, specifically European countries, are not doing enough now? I mean, only seven NATO countries have met the 2% defense spending obligations. So is it about these countries, the neighboring countries of Ukraine, doing more? Or do you think those countries should also be watching where the money goes and should be more careful about uh, funding Ukraine? I think one of the interesting facts that few Americans know is that uh, I think it's about half of the European countries actually run annual surpluses. To my knowledge, I think Germany and Sweden, who both have big welfare states, big government, much bigger and more involved government than the U.S. has, actually run surpluses each year. Their taxes exceed their expenditures. And, um, you know, I think they're in a position where they, they can help out, plus it's a much more immediate threat to them. I think the NATO alliance, when we originally participated in it, was a much different situation. It was a a three million person Soviet army. The Soviet army or the Russian army has shown their inability to defeat a much smaller country with a much smaller army. So I think this is actually a good example of the weakness of Russia. Also a great example of probably one of the worst foreign policy decisions that any modern leader has made. Hmm. Um, You have also in the past, you've said that effectively it's the U.S. who is to blame for the Russian invasion in part because of their support for the admission to NATO. No, I think that's you. Here we are now again. The way I would describe it is this, is that we have made promises in the past not to extend NATO uh, one inch further. When Germany was admitted, unified Germany was admitted to NATO, we did make that promise. So we have made false promises. We also have encouraged in um, allowing former parts of the Soviet Union into NATO. Uh, Russia has strongly resisted that, and I think it's been an unwise diplomatic course, and it's been a bellicose one that doesn't justify anything that Russia has done, but it at least makes understandable their arguments for what they're doing. If you don't understand your enemy's arguments or you don't understand your adversary's uh, rationale, I think you have less chance of finding resolution. Most wars end with uh, negotiated settlement, Uh, Very few wars are ended in unconditional surrender, and I predict that this war, when it ends, will be negotiated settlement. And the longer it goes on, the more Ukraine suffers and the more Ukraine is destroyed. So I think there do need to be rational, reasonable voices talking about uh, negotiations. So do you think President Biden should now be saying the time has come for a peace deal and that perhaps part of Ukrainian territory should be handed over to Russia as part of that? 
really, I don't think it's the U.S.'s prerogative to tell any country what they should determine. Every country, particularly a country that's been attacked, will have to be the ultimate decider on these things. But we've so involved us with this that essentially it's, it is us versus Russia. All the weapons are coming from us. Europe's participating to a certain extent as well. But we have involved ourselves into this. But I think part of the problem around the world is that America often thinks that, well, we get to make the decisions and, uh, you know, we respect our sovereignty, but we don't necessarily respect yours. But no, it shouldn't be our decision on this. They were invaded and they'll have to decide. So it's a terrible position for the Ukraine people to say that we're not going to negotiate. But that being said, it's ultimately their decision. Shouldn't the U.S. in some sense, though, play a role in that? Shouldn't it be the leader here? Many people turn to the U.S. They look to the U.S. for that kind of moral leadership. And so perhaps it is the role of the government to step in. Do you not think that that's the role America plays? I think that uh, you have two poles here. You have on one side, you have Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, uh, sometimes some of the Middle Eastern countries. And on the other side, you have uh, Europe and the U.S. and Australia, Canada, etc., And I think that in order to get to a peaceful settlement, it's much more likely to happen if the negotiator were actually someone seen as a more neutral uh, party. I think there are other neutral parties. There's been some discussions in Turkey. I think Turkey is seen more as a neutral party than the U.S. Uh, The U.S. is big. We have might. We have great amounts of weapons. But I don't think it makes peace much more likely to happen if it comes at the, the behest of U.S. demands. Uh, who are seen basically as the enemy now by Russia, as opposed to a, a neutral country that might not be funding or supplying arms. There are still many in Congress who firmly support military aid to Ukraine, but they too see the need for other NATO countries to share in the financial burden. When your constituents say, but Senator, why are we doing the heavy lifting when this is a fight literally in the backyard of Europe and you still don't have the major countries there meeting their commitment that they've said for the last 20 years they were going to meet. It's a very legitimate argument that comes from American taxpayers, American constituents. Alaska's Republican Senator Dan Sullivan has been pushing for the president to make sure our fellow alliance members pay their fair share when it comes to Ukraine's defense. And I think one of the most important ways to address it is to say, well, the Europeans and the Canadians, who are particularly laggards in this regard, are stepping up because they recognize the threats, not just in Europe, but globally. And that's why in the meetings we had over in Vilnius, every world leader that I met with, I pressed this topic. It's not just the cuts, it's also the, the drip, drip, perhaps, or the slow rolling of weapons, which I know you've talked about. And oh, I mean, no, the Ukrainians that, that, are frankly upset about the, the they're not the getting other, what they need. That's the other topic where I've been critical of them. But this war, as we're seeing, you know, unfortunately, has the potential to go on for quite some time. The frustration was every other major weapon system that we have pressed for, whether it was tanks, whether it was patriots, it's been the same pattern. The Ukrainians let us know what they need. We slow roll it for several months. We finally then get it after the administration gets pressured by Congress, particularly the U.S. Senate, and they get it there. Stingers, HIMARS. And now it's the F-16s. This, in my view, has been self-deterrence because the reason they've always slow rolled it is they say it's going to potentially make Putin escalate. Well, Putin has already escalated, Mm. for God's sake. A lot of people in the U.S. might say 
look, this is perhaps Europe's war. Maybe it's not a national security threat to us. You know, there is inflation, rising energy, gas prices. Maybe this isn't that important for us to step in. How would you counter those views that this does affect U.S. national security? This does send messages around the world. Well, what I've been saying since the minute the invasion happened is that it has heralded a new era of authoritarian aggression, which is led by the dictators in Moscow and Beijing. They're working together. They're driven by historical grievances. They're paranoid about their democratic neighbors, and they're willing to use military force and other aggressive means to crush their neighbors and try to divide us from our allies. And to me, that demonstrates a very significant core threat to American national security interests. And the other element of this is I think this new era of authoritarian aggression is going to be with us for decades. We need to recognize that. We need to face it with confidence and strategic resolve because we have comparative advantages relative to these dictatorships that make us much stronger. The broad network of allies, our lethal military, and I think really importantly, our commitment to liberty and democratic values. And I do think what happens in Ukraine affects what will be happening in the Taiwan Strait and other areas in the Indo-Pacific, which is a core interest of the United States as well. Do you think that Ukraine should join NATO now or should there at least be a roadmap towards joining NATO? Zelensky was quite unhappy that there wasn't a more specific roadmap uh, laid out this week. I understand why President Zelensky would be unhappy. I mean, being in his position right now is obviously enormously challenging. But the focus has to be right now, which is to win and to provide the military weapon systems to enable them to win. I mean, to be honest, the whole issue of NATO membership becomes moot if they get defeated. So to me, the most immediate priority is the continued assistance to Ukraine. And after there's a victory, you can have the debate on membership. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. A year ago, annual consumer inflation hit a peak of more than 9%, with prices going up faster than they had since 1981. Now, June 2023, inflation comes in at 3%, a two-year low, looking at the Labor Department's Consumer Price Index. Grocery prices are basically flat from the month before, up 4.7% since last year. Avi Kanner owns the Morton Williams supermarket chain based in New York. Numbers have definitely not come down from last June, but they've definitely slowed down. There's been a stability. Uh, last year was out of control. We would get literally thousands of price increases every week. We couldn't even keep up with increasing prices on the shelves. Who's on Fox Business. That is good. Overall news for the Federal Reserve. Taylor Riggs is on Fox Business Monday to Friday, co-anchoring The Big Money Show. Headline came down to about 3%. Core, just under 5%. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve looks at core. Almost 5% means it's still double the Fed's target of 2%. So there is some good news in that we're going in the right direction, but we still have some more work to do. 
I bet we're still a go in July for a Fed rate hike, and then we'll have to see about further on from there. So, uh, so at least one more. I think so, yeah. The market's still looking at 80 90% chance of a July hike in the next few weeks. So I, I think that's good because, again, inflation is still too high. I think 5% to us, it feels good because yeah. this time last year, it was 9%. <laughs> so it was all about perspective. Yeah. Core, just to remind people, just takes out the stuff that, that bounces up and down all the time. Yeah, anyway. super volatile, like food and energy. Oil prices can swing um, you know, up and down. Food can swing up and down. So the Fed likes to look at core because it's a little bit more of a a reliable measure. But unfortunately, as you and I know, we're still paying for gas and food. So yeah. those high prices are still hitting us. Yeah, that stuff is just more affected by external factors that have nothing to do with what's going on you know, in the economy. Yeah. Automakers are making more cars. So those prices are down, which means used car prices are yes. going down. It's been nuts for a couple of years, and that seems to be easing off a little bit. Yeah. So good news is airfares and used car prices were down. I think airfares were down something like 8%. And to your point, used car prices are down, which is really good. I think, you know, again, sort of the downside of that is the consumer. I am just shocked at the resiliency of this consumer. Uh, so they're still spending. So it's good that those prices are coming down. I think my worry, though, is that people see those lower prices and then they go out and they spend more. And so that's something certainly the Fed is watching. But that is finally certainly some good news that prices are coming down. When consumer spending remains high, how much of that is a factor of, well, yeah, they're spending more because they have to because the prices are higher. And how much of it is because mm -hmm. they're doing well and maybe their wages are up? Uh, excellent question. We learned in the inflation print that real wages, so our wage after inflation, was positive. In May, that number, of course, was negative because inflation was outpacing the wage gains. This was one of the first times where our real wages increase faster than inflation. So I think to your point, yes, on a sort of nominal basis, we're spending more because everything costs more. But typically in an economic cycle, if the cure for high prices is high prices, effectively we would be pulling back if prices were too high. And so I think the fact that the consumer is still so strong is a lot, again, of continued pandemic stimulus that still has yet to filter out through the system. I think the Fed is waiting for that demand to pull back before they have good, clear signs that the economy is starting to tilt more um, into the downside. Looking at stuff that's still kind of sticky, services are up, restaurant meals are, mm -hmm. are, are, are still higher than they were, and that's probably not going away. Once the menu changes, the, that, you know, <laughs> once, that, once, that, once that sandwich is 14 bucks, that sandwich is 14 bucks. It never goes back down to 10. Right. And same with owner's equivalent rent, I think um, also to your point was higher. Once they raise your rent, I've never been in an apartment where the landlord says, oh, I'm going to cut your rent next year because prices are going down. So you're right. That's the sticky stuff. And that is the big worry from this Federal Reserve, that all of that demand and I mean, to your point, restaurants, I mean, consumers are still flying and they're still eating out. And so this is a consumer that I think is still picking and choosing where they want to spend that money. And they're still craving some of those experiences and those travel. And so they're still spending. How are we with labor participation now? I mean, a, a big factor in that going down was COVID and some child care going on, child care going under, or lo losing that. And child care costs are still way, way up. Is that... Um, still a big factor. Are women in particular yeah. still not coming back to where they were? 
I have read that women are coming back in droves. And I think, unfortunately, it's because they have to. I heard it was Danny Meyer who runs the big Mm. restaurant group. He said, inflation has done what no politician could do, which is bring people back to work because they have to work because prices are so high. So people are coming back in droves just to try to make ends meet. I know, again, we had the jobs report last Friday. People and employers are still creating jobs, and household surveys are showing that people are still wanting to get jobs, um, showing that I think, again, those high prices are really hitting family budgets, and people are re-entering that workforce um, to try to make ends meet. Are there economists who say that 2% Fed target is outdated, mm-hmm. that, that look, it's not, it's, we're better off having people working and, and, and thriving than we are sticking to that, what some might call an arbitrary figure? I have a different view on that. I think in the long run, most economies in the history of this world and numerous studies from the ECB, which is the European Central Bank, the BOE from the UK, our own Federal Reserve has shown that 2% is sort of that goal where it's not too high inflation, where you don't want hyperinflation, but it's good enough that you get price stability. Mm -hmm. And there is something about that 2% that keeps an economy stable and people feeling confident in prices for tomorrow. I will say that inflation is a regressive tax. It hits everyone. It is a tax that we are all paying. It is that silent killer. So I know a lot of people have been criticizing the Fed. Oh, just raise it up to 3 or 4% the inflation target, and then we wouldn't have to kill the economy. That's another tax on the people. Um, And then I think in the long run really hurts price stability, which is the Fed's goal. So I think the Fed has done a good job of keeping that goal at 2%, trying to get inflation back down, and again, trying to get rid of that sort of silent tax that we all pay. And that, frankly, it hurts everyone, and it really hurts the lowest income borrowers the most. Yeah, because everybody, like you said, those people may need to borrow money more readily. They may, they may use credit cards more, for example. Yes. And credit card rates are back up to another mm-hmm. record high, 23% or so. So it's that lower income mm-hmm. borrower that really gets hit by inflation the most. Is recession talk over? We've, we, 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 we've, we've <laughs> spoken before about this, the goal of a, you know, a soft landing yeah. for the economy. And you know people have put you know odds on what they thought what a recession might be this yeah. year, next year. What are people saying now? I call it the Godot recession. Mm-hmm. Waiting for Godot. Where is it? We have been waiting. We've been hearing calls of recession since last October. It is July. So it is wild. Again, the consumer has been shockingly resilient. I think the Fed is shocked that we maybe aren't in a recession. To your point, again, this sort of disinflationary CPI print shows that maybe a soft landing is possible. Maybe you can bring down prices back to that long-term 2% target and not kill the economy because the jobs report shows that you're still adding about 200,000 jobs. That's phenomenal this late in an economic cycle. So I feel like maybe there is more talks of that soft landing. I think the thing to watch, as we've talked a lot about before, the consumer is two-thirds of this economy. How does the consumer respond in the second half of this year? And then from then on, how does then the Fed respond? Small business confidence, seven-month high according to the National Federation of Independent Business. A little surprising to me considering interest rate hikes mean less ability to get small business loans, pay for small business loans. Do people you talk to feel the same way or there's still a lot of wariness? We spoke with Kevin O'Leary of O'Leary Ventures on the program earlier this week, and I read out that statistic to him. Small business optimism is at a seven-month high. How is this possible when inflation is still the number one concern? And he said... 
there's something wrong with that data. That is not what we are hearing at all from all the entrepreneurs that he speaks and works with every day. Um, They don't have lending from banks. Banks are pulling back. It's hard to get credit. It's hard to get loans. And that it's hard to fill job vacancies still. It's hard to pay people the wages to compete with other wages that are out there. And so from at least his perspective, there's something drastically different than what that data is showing us. Side topic. Remember a few years ago when uh, buying and flipping houses was the thing? <laughs> yes. Um, in more recent years, it's been buying and short-term renting houses, apartments. Mm-hmm. That maybe coming back to mm-hmm. bite people. Mm-hmm. Those bookings are way, way down. Do we know why? And are a lot of people sort of regretting these new business ventures? We've talked a lot on our program about it could be uh, some of the crime. We've talked about the doom loop. I think after the... Oh gosh, Explain the I'm doom gonna... loop. It basically, it's hard to... When bad things happen, people leave. That hurts ancillary businesses. It hurts restaurants. It yes. hurts services. Property taxes go down. Yes. Tax, general, all taxes go down. Tax revenue comes down. And then it's hard to provide those services that might bring people back. And it's that feedback loop, right? And then it spurs more crime because there's not enough business and you don't have people coming in downtown. And, and mm. yeah, so... Um, it's that, a thing that's happened, you know, throughout history that, that we get these cycles of doom loops in cities, especially. Yeah. And at least within some of the large cities, we're seeing that now. And so I think there's been a lot of concern of... Um, we had a local business person on from Texas, too, and he says it's hard in Austin to get people to come to Main Street when you have a lot of crime and a lot of empty storefronts, so then visitors aren't coming, so then they're losing revenue, and it's sort of perpetuating that. So Airbnb, look, we're going to start to get some of the quarterly results. We're going to be able to hear from Airbnb themselves in just a few weeks. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are consumers telling them? Is this isolated to cities in that, quote, sort of doom loop? Or is this sort of a broader-based pullback from the consumer and why? Is the consumer still going to more remote places or they still want to be experiencing that downtown vibrancy for a fun weekend? And we'll have to see. Yeah, just talking to people who've given this a shot. Um, for example, shore towns in Maine, very rural places in Maine, they're feeling the same thing. Like their bookings are way, way, way down. So I'm not sure that it is isolated to cities. And maybe that is part of the consumer uh, pullback that we've been – we kept saying wait until the second half of this year for the consumer to finally be able to look at their budget and say, mm-hmm. my budget can't fit that. Um, maybe that is part of what we are seeing. Taylor Riggs, co-anchor of The Big Money Show on Fox Business, 1 p.m. Eastern? Yes, all weekdays. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Meet the American who made us flip for hamburgers. The sizzling story of the American who pioneered the great American hamburger comes with a few surprises and a lasting family legacy. Ludwig Louis Lassen, American hamburger pioneer, was born in Denmark on July 30th, 1865. He arrived in the U.S. around the age of 20. Lassen tried his hand at various careers before he became a street cart food vendor. He opened Louis Lunch, his food wagon, in 1895 when he was 30 years old in New Haven, Connecticut. In 1900, Lassen began placing ground beef patties between two slices of bread for a quick and delicious lunch. And just like that, the hamburger sandwich was born. After his culinary success, he turned his food wagon into a brick-and-mortar business in 1907 on George Street. The entire building was moved to its current location at 261 Crown Street in 1975. Today, fourth-generation owner Jeff Lasten still flame broils every hamburger in the same 125-year-old cast-iron ovens first used by his great-grandfather in 1898. Lewis Lunch Burgers are ground fresh every day, served between slices of toasted white bread. The only options for toppings at Lewis Lunch are cheese 
cheese, onion, and or tomato. No ketchup, no mustard, no lettuce. The hamburger, by the way, is not an American invention. Ground beef patties came from Hamburg, Germany, where they're served as an entree. Hamburg is not far from the Danish border, so it's likely the Lassens were familiar with hamburgers before arriving in the U.S. The American innovation, Lassens innovation, was making the hamburger mobile by serving it as lunch. Americans today eat over 50 billion burgers a year, billion with a B, making Lassen's invention perhaps the nation's favorite food. Louis Lassen died in 1935, but Louis Lunch today in New Haven, Connecticut, is a living museum of American culinary history. And while others over the years have claimed ownership of the hamburger, only Louis Lassen is recognized by the Library of Congress as the hamburger's inventor. He received that designation in the year 2000 from the Library of Congress. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? It's been 10 years since Black Lives Matter was founded in July of 2013. But its 10th anniversary is anything but a happy occasion, given the self-inflicted actions that have resulted in its dire financial situation. How far has this organization fallen, you ask? And the bigger question, why? Because it turns out those leading Black Lives Matter were taking tens of millions of dollars in donations to enrich themselves. Multi-million dollar mansions purchased everywhere from Los Angeles to Atlanta to Toronto. Tax returns not even filed until 2022, nine years after Black Lives Matter was launched. And now, after BLM has been exposed for what it is, the donations have basically stopped coming in. Black Lives Matter. Get this, received $90 million in donations in the year 2020. In 2021, the money still kept coming in. $77 million came into the coffers. But after wave after wave of bad press, bad press they created, in 2022, just $9 million was donated. That's a 90% drop from its high just two years ago. And now, reports that Black Lives Matter may declare bankruptcy. It has gone from swimming in cash to being nearly $9 million in the hole. While tax returns now show that only one-third, 33% of donations went to the charities they were supposed to. So what exactly happened to the rest of that money? Ah, we all know the answer. And with the donations and the goodwill dried up, it's hard to see how they're going to turn things around at this point. And if that is the case, then good riddance. Because the only black lives that were made better as a result of Black Lives Matter were those actually running it. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.